Amen. Endings to things are really important. Endings matter. Endings matter. Whether it's for a movie, endings matter in, in movies. Movies that have endings either make you really excited or make you really mad sometimes with, with the way certain movies end. Not the closure you wanted or left you hanging. Endings matter in books. can be a complete twist at the end of a book that just makes it incredible. Endings matter in stories. Endings matter. You, you can try to imagine your favorite movie, your favorite book, your favorite story without the ending that it has. It would not be the same. Or if you're like me with movies, you often see three-fourths of a movie and then usually sleep for the last fourth of it. It's usually, it's kind of my MO recently. I'd lo- I would love to see the end of a movie. I just have not been able to do that recently. Not sure why. But endings matter in songs too. Like the song we just sang was all about the ending that we're moving to together as believers in Christ. And if, and if your favorite song was just cut off halfway through, it wouldn't have the same parts that you love about it. Well, this is especially true with the hymn Amazing Grace. We've been studying this hymn, for, if you're just joining us this morning, we've been studying this hymn for about six weeks now because this month, or sorry, the month of January, marks the 250th anniversary of that hymn. And it's such a just culture-transcending, time-transcending hymn that we're taking time to go through it verse by verse and see what's so true about this hymn that impacts the world and has impacted generation after generation of people. Well, endings, the ending of Amazing Grace is really important, and it's actually kind of confusing. Because usually when we sing that song, the most well-known ending is when we've been there 10,000 years. Bright, shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. A great ending. I mean, it goes up, a little crescendo there. It has a it's really impactful ending. And it's, it's good, it's right, it's true, it's biblical. But that wasn't the original ending to the song. That verse, actually, those four words, it wasn't even from the same hymn. It wasn't even from the same author. John Newton did not write that ending. When Amazing Grace was written back in 1773, from that point on, it took this long and winding path and actually remained a really unpopular song for the majority of the past 250 years. It was not really well known. And you can even go look and see hymnals that were published in England where John Newton wrote it for the next 100 years, and it might show up in one of them because it just wasn't that big of a deal. Well, it grew to be more popular in early America than it ever was in England. And it became especially popular, the song did, in the American South. And there's a lot of layers and stories behind that. But the ending that we associate with the end of Amazing Grace when we've been there 10,000 years, that ending didn't first show up in a hymn book. It actually first showed up in a novel. In 1852... Harriet Beecher Stowe published the anti-slavery novel, novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin. And in that novel, one of the characters is reflecting on when he used to sing in church as a kid. And as he's reflecting on that in the story, he recalls singing Amazing Grace, and he recalls it line by line, same beginning that we saw, same middle that we saw as we've been in this study. But then he adds at the end, when we've been there 10,000 years, 
bright shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. That ending had never been seen with that song before. But clearly, it's obviously in a novel, but clearly there was evidence there that that was how Amazing Grace was sung around America, around the American South for a period of time, that, that, that it was known in such a way. And actually, those four lines that we're used to being at the end come from a different song called Jerusalem, My Happy Home. It was published in Virginia in 1790. And there's so many different versions of that song out there that there's over 50 stanzas that can be attributed to that song. So when I'm done here, we're going to sing that song together. It's going to be amazing. Hope you packed a lunch. It's going to be awesome. But back then, before print and recording were were super common, it was common to just interchange stanzas from different hymns. And so that's what happened with Amazing Grace. And this new version, what we know today as the standard version, grew in popularity because of this worship leader at the time named Edwin Excel. And he published a best-selling hymn book in 1910 called Coronation Hymns, and it's given the version of Amazing Grace with the tune, the words that is most popular today. Endings matter. Endings matter. And that wasn't the original last verse of the hymn. The original last verse of the hymn, the very last verse that John Newton wrote in 1773 when he wrote the hymn, says this. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine, but God who called me here below will be forever mine. Endings matter. The end of a song matters, but that end of the song points us to a bigger ending. And this whole, as we take the song together and all the truths of Scripture that we've seen throughout this whole deal, the truth that I want us to leave with this morning is God's grace always leads to glory. God's grace always leads to glory. No disclaimers, no fine print, no little asterisks with another note at the bottom. Always. God's grace always leads to glory. And we're going to see this from the passage that's been shaping our worship service this morning, Titus chapter 2. So go ahead and turn to Titus with me. Titus 2. It's a shorter letter towards the end of the New Testament, second half of the Bible, if you're trying to find it in your Bible or on your phone there. And if you want to use the, the blue Bible in front of you, you can turn to page 998. 998. Titus chapter 2. This passage, Titus 2, it's a really short passage, but it's going to connect us to all that we've seen throughout this entire series on Amazing Grace. All that we've learned and taken in together, and just the overall story of the song as well. Titus chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 11 through 14 for us. The Apostle Paul writes in verse 11, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself 
a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The hymn Amazing Grace tells a story. It was a story that started, as we saw a few weeks ago, with, the, with King David's life. It's a story that we saw and have seen in John Newton's life. It's the story of every Christian's life. The song Amazing Grace, if you have put your faith in Christ, it tells the story of your past. It tells the story of your present. It tells the story of your future. And you get the same three movements in this little paragraph. It's actually, I don't know if it shows up this way in your Bible, but in mine, it's just one big sentence. There's no period until the very end. This would be a great passage, by the way, to memorize. It sums up the Bible for you. It sums up what it means to be a Christian. Titus 2, 11 to 14. John Newton called this passage, he said it, that these short verses are the epitome of the whole faith and practice and hope of a Christian. And as we see these, these movements, the way we're going to walk through it is we're going to see God's grace in the past, God's grace in the present, God's grace in the future. And you'll see these come out from these verses. So let's look first at God's grace in the past. Verse 11 makes that really clear. Paul says, notice the tense of, of the words here. So good, doing a little English class. Got to pay attention to some tenses. Got to notice some verbs, some, some subjects. We're, we're going full-on language arts here. So if, if, that hasn't, if that's not something you've been in in a while, try to reach back and grab that. And if you're sitting next to someone who's currently in school, maybe that can help you. All right, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. God's grace is right in front of our faces from the very beginning of these verses. The grace of God has appeared. It might sound like in that sentence that God's grace is this mysterious force that moves around the universe and moves around the earth. But as we've learned over over these weeks, God's grace is not a thing. God's grace is a person. The grace of God has appeared, and the grace of God appeared when Jesus appeared. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the grace of God appeared. When Jesus healed the sick and raised the dead, the grace of God appeared. When Jesus gave his life on the cross and came back from the dead three days later, the grace of God appeared. God's grace is his generous one-way love for undeserving people like me and like you. And when Jesus came to earth 2,000 years ago, it was God's grace in action. He came on a mission of grace. He came because of the grace of God. That's why John Newton says at the very beginning of Amazing Grace, the, the verse that almost everyone knows, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. The grace of God has appeared. Think about that word appeared for a second. To appear doesn't mean something came into existence for the first time. So when it says the grace of God appeared, it doesn't mean God didn't have any grace and then all of a sudden God did have grace. No, appear means something that was hidden now has become visible. Appear means something that you couldn't see, you can now see. It's like when the sun rises in the morning. When, when the sun rose this morning, beautiful sunrise this morning. But when the sun rose this morning, none of us were like, oh, thank goodness, I thought the sun was gone. Like, like not, no, no one was thinking that. 
And when it sets tonight, no one's like, oh my gosh, I, I don't know if the sun's coming back. I, I think it's gone. No, it, it appears and disappears. It rises and sets. So when the sun arises, it, it's not that it starts to exist, but it shows up for everybody to see it. And that's the same thing that we see about the grace of God here. God has always been gracious. God has never not been gracious. There are many times earlier in the Bible, in the Old Testament, when God tells his people that he is gracious. It's, it's part of the core way he describes himself back in Exodus 34. We saw this a few weeks ago as well. That he says, I, I am the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And there's times in the Old Testament over and over where you see these glimpses of God's grace where he shows love and favor to people that they don't deserve or earn. But when Jesus became a man, God's grace became more bright and more visible than it had ever been. When Jesus came to earth, it was the clearest display of grace there has ever been. And that's because he says in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. When Jesus came, he was bringing something we didn't currently have. When he came, he was bringing something we didn't currently own, we couldn't earn. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. He brought salvation with him. Salvation for all people. All people. Jesus came to save all kinds of people. Not just people that look like you or think like you or talk like you or from where you're from, but people of all different kinds. God came to save men and women, young and old, people from every nation, people from every language. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. God's grace came to bring salvation for people that don't even know who Jesus is yet that have never been to church a day in their life, God's grace came to bring salvation for those people. For anyone that puts their faith in Jesus Christ. So when we look at God's grace in the past, I want you to see God's grace is the starting point. It's the foundation of a relationship with him. If you and I are able to have a visual of our relationship with God, and we dug through our church attendance, and we dug through Bible reading, or we dug through good works, and we could dig all the way to the bottom, you would not see yourself in the foundation. You and I are not the foundation of our relationship with God. God is. His grace is. He has appeared. God's grace has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So this is God's grace in the past, but his work doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there. Let's look at God's grace in the present. God's grace in the present. Look in chapter 2, Titus 2, verse 12. Verse 12. So God's grace has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And just like Robin pointed out earlier, the the sentence continues. The description of what God does in our life, it continues. Verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. God's grace in the present. When God, by his grace, saves a person, 
there is a change that takes place. Yes, there's, there's a, a time when he saves your soul by forgiving all of your sin, past, present, and future, and giving, giving you eternal life. But then God also begins to transform who you are. God's grace doesn't just change everything about our past, wiping out all our sins, and then change everything about our future to where now we, by his grace, get to go to heaven instead of hell. It also changes everything right now in the present age. God's grace is more than just good news for yesterday or tomorrow. It's good news for today. It's good news for right now. Because he says God's grace is training us, teaching us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Notice the way he describes it there. This transformation is internal and external. Ungodliness would refer to outward actions, words, decisions, worldly passions, internal. The grace of God does not just take a person and go, oh, you didn't go to church? Well, now you go to church. The grace of God doesn't just say, oh, well, you, you weren't a religious person, now I'm going to make you a religious person. Anybody can just kind of decide to turn over a new leaf and make that change. Only the grace of God can change you from the inside out. Training us to renounce or say no, deny ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. It's the same internal, external thing. Self-controlled, your relationship with yourself. Upright, your relationship with other people. Godly lives, relationship with God. There's so much that we could just pause there and talk about each of those on their own. But the big picture I want us to see is that God's grace transforms the entire person. It doesn't just transform. He doesn't just transform who you and I are for a couple hours on Sunday morning. He transforms who we are all the time. A true sign of the work of God's grace is not just behavior change. That's part of it. But it's, it's heart change. It's changing the whole person. Not all at once, gradually for sure. And in my life, I know it is a slow work. Not because of God, but because of me. But he changes you. God's grace is working a complete 180 in the life of each person that trusts in Jesus to be their king and be their savior. To where you go from your old life to your new life, from ungodliness to godliness, from self-centeredness to self-control. Every Christian is called to live a daily, holy life for your whole life. All of us, if you've put your faith in Christ, we are all called to a daily, lifelong pursuit of godliness. But don't hear that without grace. It's a misunderstanding to think that our salvation starts by God's grace but then continues by our own effort. Our effort matters for sure in day-to-day holiness. Paul says in another one of his letters, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But then he also says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Our effort matters, but our effort is nothing without the work of God's grace. So when you sit down to read your Bible, or when you take a few moments to pray, when you resist that nagging temptation, when you step out in obedience to the Lord, 
That's all evidence of God's grace at work in your life. Those are things you and I would never do without God changing our hearts. But also when you fail, when you give in to that temptation after promising God you would never give in to it again, when you can't remember the last time you spent meaningful time with the Lord in his word or in prayer, when your heart feels dull or cold, if you've trusted in Christ, your relationship with Jesus is still all because of his grace. I want to point out something to you that connects us back to God's grace in the past. Skip down with me to verse 14. We'll we'll come back to verse 13. We'll end there, but skip down to verse 14. Notice the way Paul describes what Jesus did. He says in verse 14, talking about Jesus, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. What I want us to notice is that the very thing God's grace teaches or trains us to do is the very thing Jesus died for. He says in verse 14, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Verse 12, God's grace also trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Verse 14, he says, Jesus died to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Verse 12, God's grace also trains us to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. Jesus died to carry out the very things God's grace is bringing about in your life. This is why his grace is so amazing. All of our disobedience, all of it, internal, external, old, new, future, all of it is completely covered by his grace, and all our obedience is completely enabled by his grace. It's it's all grace, and it's always all his grace. But what this passage is leading us to, what the hymn leads us to, is that it's not just grace yesterday and today, it's grace forever. God's grace forever. Grace always leads to glory. Always. The salvation he has brought, the training he's working in our lives, it all has a goal. It all has an end. And that's where we're going to wrap up this morning. God's grace in the future. God's grace in the future. This is the goal of all this. This is, this is the, the, the goal of why we come in here week after week to worship together. This is the goal of why we are trying to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives right now. This is why. Verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. God's grace has saved us, and God's grace right now is training us, and it's as we're learning to live holy lives that we are also waiting for our blessed hope. What is that? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're waiting, it says. We're we're waiting. This is not the first time we've talked about the connection between waiting and God's grace in this study, in this series. We've seen that God's grace sustains us 
and secures us even while we endure trials and difficulties in this world. And we're waiting for that suffering to end. We're waiting for those hardships to go away. We're waiting for the struggle of sin to be gone. But this is what we're ultimately waiting for in all of that. Waiting for our blessed hope. That's, I know that, that phrase, our blessed hope, that sounds so churchy. I know. But I think about the phrase a little bit. We are waiting with expectation. We are waiting for something specific. We are waiting with a joyful certainty. Blessed hope means an endlessly happy future is what we're waiting for. And it's not just some abstract happiness that we're waiting for. It's not just the end of all things bad. It's the beginning of all things perfect and good and holy and right. And all that comes about with what he describes in verse 13, excuse me, waiting for our blessed hope. What What is that? What is the future happiness, endless happiness that we're waiting for? Very next phrase, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's that's it. That's the goal. That's what we're waiting for, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We've seen the word appear already, haven't we? Shows up again. We saw the word back in verse 12, for the grace of God has appeared. Now he says here in verse 13 that we're waiting for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Remember, appearing doesn't mean bringing into existence. It means something that was hidden is going to be revealed. Something that we can't currently see, we're going to get to see. Because right now, Jesus is ruling and reigning with all power and might in heaven right now. But when we look around our world, we we struggle to see that. Look in our lives, we struggle to see that sometimes. You you get glimpses, like Mari's baptism this morning, that's a glimpse of the rule and reign of Jesus on the move. And we get glimpses in each other's lives of how his grace and power is at work, but one day his glory is going to fully appear. His glory is going to be bright and clear for all to see. And this verse points out, notice here, that in the present age happens between those two appearings. The grace of God has appeared. Here's how we live now. The glory of God's going to appear. We live our lives right now between the first appearing of God's grace and the second appearing of God's glory. Jesus' first coming, act of grace. Jesus' second coming, act of glory. Grace has appeared. Glory will one day appear because God's grace always leads to glory. And the verse about our lives now is between the two verses about the appearing because we live our lives in real time right now between those two appearances. We live with verse 11 behind us and verse 13 ahead of us. We live in light of both. One author said it in a really helpful way. He said, there is both a push and a pull in Christian living. We are pushed from behind by the wonder of God's grace, 
and were pulled forward by the hope of glory. Yes, God saves sinners from hell, but he also saves us for heaven. Yes, God saves us from being separated from him forever, but he also saves us to be with him forever. This is why God's grace is so amazing. It pushes us from behind, but also pulls us from the front. Because grace always leads to glory. You can't stop it. That's why John Newton wrote in the very last verse of the hymn, The earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine. He's thinking about when Jesus brings about the end of time. But he says, but God, who called me here below, there's the, there's the, the push from the past, will be forever mine. There's the pull. God's grace has appeared. God's glory is going to appear. And John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, he knew God's grace always leads to glory. He knew that. He lived that. He preached that. He wrote that. He once said about heaven in in a letter he wrote to someone, he once said, when I get to heaven, I expect to find three wonders there. I expect to find three wonders. He said, the first wonder is that there's going to be people there I did not expect to be there. They had faith in Christ and, and I didn't know it. He said, the second wonder is going to be, there's going to be some people missing that I thought would be there. And he said, but the third wonder and the greatest wonder of all, he said, is that I myself will be there. No one gets to heaven and says, I made it. You get to heaven and you say, look where God's grace carried me. Look where God's grace has brought me to. God's grace is good news for yesterday. It's good news for today. And it's good news for every day between now and the last day and for eternity after that. The work that God's grace began, he will by his grace complete. I promise you, our God is not a God who leaves things undone. Grace always leads to glory. And God's grace is carrying everything forward to the day when people from every country and every language will be gathered around God's throne in God's presence, proclaiming God's praises because of the gracious, saving work of God's Son. So we're being trained by God's grace right now. We're fighting sin. We're enduring trials. We're confused by life at times. But we're waiting And we're being trained and we're waiting together. And when you see it in light of what God's grace is going to do in the future, when you feel the pull that it's talking about forward, the temptations that we face right now don't look as bright when you see the glory that's coming. The trials that we endure, though painful and grieving they are, they can't be the end. Because Jesus hasn't returned yet. God's act of grace is not yet done because his act of glory isn't here. There's more to come. These three verses, the truths I just imperfectly explained, this is the story of the Bible. This is what it means 
to be a Christian. This is the story of every Christian's life. The beginning, all grace. The middle, all grace. The end, all grace and glory. Endings matter. Not just movies, stories, songs, but the end of our lives matter. The end of our lives matter. John Newton, long after he wrote Amazing Grace in 1773, he kept writing, he kept preaching, he kept loving and serving other people as long as he was able to do so. And in December of 1807, these compounding health issues were bringing him to the end of his life. And people were coming to visit him. Friends that he had impacted, other pastors that he'd helped walk through different difficult things in ministry and churches. They were all kind of taking their time to come visit him. He told one of his friends, he said, I'm packed and sealed and waiting for the post, is what he told him. He was ready to go. And he died on December 21st, 1807. He was 82 years old. He's buried next to his wife, Mary. This is the grave there today at the church that I showed you in Olney, where he wrote the hymn. His grave is there now. The only reason his grave is there, he went on to later become a pastor in London and was interned underneath a church in London. But when they started um, building the tube in London, the subway system in London, his, his grave was in the way. So they had to move it, and they moved it out to his church in Olney. And you can see he's buried next to his wife. I told you a little bit about their story. But on the back of the grave, there's this inscription. And even in his church in London, this inscription still is there as well. He wrote this. He wrote his own little inscription there, and it says this. John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. He never lost sight of God's grace. He knew God's grace transformed his past. He knew God's grace transformed his present. He knew and knows right now that God's grace completely transformed his future. And the beauty for us is the same gracious God is doing the same thing today. That wasn't just something that happened then. It's happened every year and month and day since then. And will keep happening until Jesus comes back. If you've trusted in Christ, these verses, this song, Amazing Grace, is your autobiography. The whole Christian life is, it moves forward by just footsteps of faith as we trust God's grace. And it moves forward with forward progress towards an eternal glory. So you and I have the privilege, when we go home today, when we get up tomorrow, we have the privilege of trusting God's grace and following him today, tomorrow, the next day the day after that, the month after that, the year after that, as long as Lord get, the Lord gives us life in this world, as we wait together for the glory of God to appear when Jesus returns. It's all grace right now. It's going to be all grace then. Amazing grace. 
and some glory as well. So let's follow him faithfully until that day.